there you go. Exodus chapter 34 this morning. We took a little break last week as we studied John chapter 15. But as you open up your Bibles this morning, I want to bring you back into the context of what we've been studying. Moses has received the law of God written on stone tablets. Uh, The people of God have grown weary of waiting on Moses because none of us like to wait. And as he was up there for 40 days, when was the last time you waited 40 days for anything? Uh, They got impatient and they started worshiping a golden calf. Now they had already heard the first 10 commandments, among which was, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship a graven image. Uh, And so with that being the case, they were all accountable to having heard that. So when Moses comes down off the mountain, he simply says, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, right? No. Moses knows what they're doing. He comes down and sees what they're doing, and he gets a little bit angry. No, he gets a lot angry. And he takes the two tablets that were meant to be the words of life to instruct them, and he throws them down on the ground. Now, in Galatians, in chapter 6, I meant to have the page marked, but it was kind of a last-minute thought. Galatians chapter 6 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you're not like me. You've seen somebody in sin before, and you got righteously angry, and you didn't sin while you were trying to help them. But Moses gets angry, so angry, that he does what many of us have possibly, maybe some of you have done this. He got angry, he yelled, and he threw stuff. Now, none of you have ever done that, and you can't relate it all to Moses, but I can. I'll be honest. And the reality is, is while he was righteous in saying they shouldn't have been doing that, I do not believe that it was necessary the will of the Lord for him in correcting the people who had broken the laws of God for him to correct them by breaking the law of God on the ground. That was not God's plan. But God's working in Moses as well as the people of God. And so with that being the case, we begin this week with God speaking to Moses about what he has done. He says, the Lord said to Moses... I want you to cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. Now, if you've ever been called out, he's being gentle, and he doesn't have to be. But he still says probably what stings to Moses. uh, uh, I'm going to write the words on these second tablets like the first, but you broke them. And I want you to remember that though they broke my law, you broke my law too. And so bring two new tablets, and I will write on them. Verse 2. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. Now some of you guys might be uh, procrastinators, but notice there, he doesn't say get ready in the morning. He says be ready in the morning because it's in the morning that I want you to come up the mountain and be ready to present yourself to me. He says, I want you to come before me and present yourself. I want you to face the fact that you've messed up. You need some more time with me. And by the way, the only thing that changes people 
It's not you yammering on and on about how they need to change. The one thing that can change people is time with God himself. And if there's one thing that we probably lack more than anything in the American Christian church, it's not time going to church, but time with God, having church. And so the personal relationship is important. He says, present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. He says, no man shall come up with you. Let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. Now, something that came up in first service that I didn't have in my notes is that notice what God instructs Moses to bring with him. Not just tablets, but blank tablets. By the way, many times when we come to worship God, we come with tablets that are already written on. We come with notebooks we've already taken notes in, and that's good. I want you to take notes. I want you to be having an understanding of who God is before we show up Sunday morning. But sometimes when we present ourselves before God, because we've already decided who God is, He can't tell us anything because we know it all. When I was 15 years old, my dad's favorite phrase that I would say to him was, I know. He would be trying to teach me something, and my response, before I ever listened, before I ever considered what he said, would be, I know. And, of course, that would make him mad because he wouldn't be telling me if I knew. And in the same way, God is always revealing to us more about himself. And if we haven't already written down what we know and go, okay, I know, now tell me something new, if we're open to what he wants to show us, then we'll learn that thing. Uh, for instance, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew God, right? They were the most learned in all of Israel. Nicodemus himself was called the teacher of Israel by Jesus because he was the teacher of Israel. And he said to Nicodemus, being the teacher of Israel, do you not know these things? And basically what he was saying is he was saying, you don't, you think you know me, but you have no idea. And, and in the same way, when Jesus God himself in the flesh walked on the scene to his own people, to the religious leaders. He was revealing who God the Father is and the heart behind the law. And you know what they said? That's not God. You're a blasphemer. You serve Satan. You're nothing like God. Well, that's because they presupposed that they knew what God was like. And so as believers, it's still a trap for us. The more we think we know, the less we're open to learn. And so he says, come up here, present yourself to me, and come with a blank set of tablets. So verse 4, he cut two tablets of stone, like the first ones. And Moses rose early in the morning, and he went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God's meeting with Moses, not only spiritually, but in a physical presence. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, patience and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By the way, this is wonderful. These are wonderful things that God has shown his people. He's forgiving. He's merciful. 
He's patience. He forgives iniquity and sin and transgression. Wonderful words. But then he goes on to say something that the culture that we live in right now says, well, it seems to me that the Bible contradicts itself because the God of the New Testament is forgiving and gracious. It's Jesus. And in the Old Testament, he's always judging people and and pouring out wrath. Well, don't stop there because in this same passage, this verse, this set of verses says exactly that. That while he is forgiving, while he is gracious, it says there, by no means clearing the guilty. God is perfect in justice. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't go, well, you didn't really mean that. He knows our hearts. He knows when we are guilty of sin, and he calls it sin. And then he tells us, you are a sinner for the opportunity for us to say, you're right, I need you to make, can you wash me? Can you make me clean? Change me. Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I I know I'm a sinner. By the way, that's the best conclusion you can come to in this life. Recognizing that without him, you're ripe for judgment. But then he says, while he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so Moses, in response to this, this is, God, in the, in the last chapter, Moses said, show me your glory. And you would think, okay, that means it's going to be a fireworks show. It's going to be something shiny, uh, full of glitter, something that brings the attention to the eye. But God's not about the sight thing. We walk by sight before we come to Jesus. But Paul wrote in Corinthians, he says, now we walk by faith and not by sight. So God says, I'm going to show you my glory, and this is what my glory looks like. It's it's God's glory to forgive. It's God's glory to to judge. It's God's glory to visit the iniquity on those who are guilty. And yet, when Moses hears God's glory and describes, here's the description that God tells of himself, verse 8, Moses made haste, he threw himself on the ground. He bowed his head towards the earth, and he worshiped. He didn't say, you're not like that. He didn't say, oh, God's so gracious. He didn't get on Facebook and post about his time with the Lord. He didn't spend time, uh, you know, showing people how good he was in his works. He stopped in that moment, and he simply humbled himself in the sight of the Lord, He put his face on dirt. When was the last time you got on your knees before God? When was the last time that you looked down at the ground and said, God made me from that dirt? And then as he was down on his knees, he didn't talk to anybody else. He just recognized who God was, and he simply said, God, you're so good. God, you're so good to me. Why haven't you smoked me at this point in our relationship? You know, we should ask that. I mean, think about the think about the thoughts you had yesterday. If they were scrolled on the screen behind me, we'd probably be embarrassed in front of each other. And we're all unholy. We've all had those thoughts. But God knows them intimately. The fact that he doesn't smoke us just because of what we think is evidence of his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And so Moses makes haste to bow his head towards the earth 
and he simply says, God, you're so good. He worships God. He ascribes to God goodness and mercy and glory. So Moses, verse 4, has complied with God's terms. He shows up with the blank tablets. He goes up the mountain. He, he prays. In uh, his prayer in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 through 23 was, Lord, would you show me your glory? And God said, in essence, you can't handle my glory. If you were to see my glory, no flesh can stay alive in the glory of, you can't see my face and live. You'll die. And yet then he reveals his glory. God rewards, by the way, simple obedience. If you're at a spot in your relationship with God and you feel like, man, I don't, I don't, I've not had any dazzling moments lately where God just shows up and does something new. If you get to a place where you don't know what God wants you to do, get back to the things that you know for sure he wanted you to do. Maybe you haven't finished them up yet. And the reality is, Moses knew at this point in his life, the big step of faith was to make two stone tablets and walk up the mountain again. Sometimes we just need to get up and walk back up the mountain again and say, okay, Lord, I feel like I'm in a dry time. I'm not hearing your voice. What's next? And then when he reveals himself to us, just spend time worshiping. But what I want to point out is that God rewards obedience. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder. God rewards those who diligently seek him. Not what he has to give, but those who diligently seek him, to know him. So verse 8, he made haste, he bowed down, he worshiped. That's what his response was when God revealed his glory to him. And then Moses prays for himself, verse 9. He worships before he ever asks for a thing he worships God. In verse 9 it says, Then he said, If now, Lord, if I have found grace in your sight, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're a stiff-necked people. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, God's not name-calling. He's calling them what they are. He says, This people, ever since I called them, they've been stiff-necked. And if you remember, stiff-necked means they're unwilling to be led. They're unwilling to submit themselves. They're unwilling to, to change direction when God says change direction. By the way, if you're unwilling to be led, if you're unwilling to turn around when God calls out your sin, then that's a sign that you're unwilling to repent. And Jesus' first message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means turn around at God's leading. God reveals your sin to you. It's not so that you can be condemned. He reveals your sin to you so that you can be saved. He reveals your sin to you so you can be healed of it. He's wanting to do surgery on your heart, and yet you have to sign, you have to sign the form that, that allows him to do it. And so he says, Lord, if we have found grace in your sight, I pray then go among us even though we are stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Sorry about that. That was, I just scheduled that, so once in a while, if you're like nodding off, you're like, what in the world? I'm kidding. I didn't schedule that on purpose. We're trying a new thing where it's not blowing the whole time. 
Because when it's blowing the whole time, it gets cold. And I've watched you shiver. I notice when you throw your coat on. But you'd think with like as nice of a place this is, they wouldn't have put in these these jump house things. Like it'd be greater if they were on the floor and we're like, well, it's time to play jumpy house. Where was I? I don't even know. It's, it's okay. I'm just kidding. I'm just giving them a moment. We can breathe in and breathe out. Now that we've all had our heart attack for the morning. <laughs> he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Remember in chapter 33, he's, he's forgiving now, but he's saying, look, I'm still going to bring you into the land of promise. Uh, but I want you to go without me because if I'm among you and you guys keep doing the stuff that you do, you're not going to make it because I'm going to have to judge your sin and that means you're going to be judged. I'd rather you make it to the land. And then Moses, as he's praying for the people, said, Lord, if you're not going with us, I ain't going. I want to be where you are. I don't care how bad the water is. I don't care how bad the air is. I don't care if our crops don't grow. I'd rather be among you. Because if I'm with these people and you're not with me, then I'm probably going to smoke them, right? By the way, being with the people of God without God's presence there is a dangerous place to be. Because without him in our presence, without him being the main focus, we'll start hacking away at each other. We won't be gracious. We won't be anointed by the Spirit. We're going to butt heads. We desperately need the Spirit to be involved in our relationships with each other in the church. And so he goes on to say, after he says, if pardon our iniquity, go with us. He says, if we have found grace in your sight, he doesn't assume that he's found grace in the Lord's sight. He says, if, if I found grace in your sight, I don't want to presume upon that grace. If I found grace in your sight, Lord, then go with us and pardon our sin. Take us as your inheritance. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, It's by grace we are saved. We don't have any favor with God unless it's undeserved. And if he chooses to give it to us, by grace, through faith, we are saved. So Moses in a, is in a prayer moment. By the way, the only way to victory in the Christian life is through time with God in prayer. He... He's getting ready to hear this restored covenant. God's going to renew his covenant with the people of Israel, but he's only having it renewed because he's humbly submitted himself to the leadership of God. And in the same way, our salvation was procured, yes, on the cross, but the victory for that salvation was procured in the garden of Gethsemane when, when Jesus was experiencing the weight of the world on his shoulders. When Luke says he sweat great drops of blood, he was praying a stone's throw away with no one else around him. He went beyond the people he was with. He knelt down and he prayed to the Father, Father, if you're willing, would you please take this cup from me? What cup? The cup of suffering that he was going to take for you and I. If there's any other way for mankind to be saved and be forgiven of their sin, but then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. I would rather do your will than be comfortable in my will. That's where our salvation was won, when he spent time with the Father. 
That's where submission was had. So verse 10 and 11, he goes on to say, it says that he said, Behold, this is God speaking to Moses, I make a covenant. I'm making a sacred agreement before all your people. He says, I will do marvels such as I have not done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. He says, observe what I command you this day. Pay attention. Do what I say. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. He says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And so he's restoring, he's renewing his covenant. God's giving them a second chance as a nation. He didn't have to. If you'll remember what he said to Moses, get back from them, I'm going to smoke them. That's my translation. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to utterly wipe them out. You might think of Genesis where the flood happened. There was only one man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and it was Noah. And he, he judged everybody else through a flood. And now he's got this special people. He's revealed to them his law, which is his protection, his love for them. And as he's revealed it, they immediately break it, and he says, Moses, get back. I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to start a new nation through just you. And Moses says, don't do that. Please don't do that. He prays for the people that are driving him nuts, and he says, Lord, please don't judge them for their iniquity because the people around us will say that you are not able to, drive, to bring them into the land. He calls not on his glory. He says, don't protect us. Protect your glory going to look like you couldn't bring us in and God says okay I'll bring them into the land I won't judge them he intercedes for them and so as he does this he gives them a second chance right after they worshiped a gold calf right after they broke one of the first commandments right after they basically cheated on him our faith our relationship with the Lord is not one that's to be taken lightly it's to be like marriage and I'm, unfortunately, that doesn't even make sense in our culture anymore because marriage is taken lightly. But I hope you know what I'm saying. In the vows that we say to one another, we say, forsaking all others, I will only devote myself to you. Ephesians 5 says that this is, this is really about, not about marriage so much as it's to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. God says, I'm going to devote myself only to you, Israelites. And they said, that sounds great, but I'm going to go out here. I'll be home later. And then they gave themselves whole hog to worshiping an idol that was made with man's hands. They sacrificed. They offered obeisance. They humbled themselves. They even did unlawful acts in front of this idol to serve it sexual acts in the name of worship and so all that said the fact that God wants to go ahead and reinstate he's doubling down on his promises to them not based on what they've done but based on who he is and so in verse 10 through 11 this is how you will know that you're mine is what he's saying to them this is how you will know that you're walking in obedience to me is that I will reward your obedience. 
You're going to see me do marvelous things, verse 10 says. Those around you will see my works, and I will be glorified in your presence. I'll drive out the current inhabitants of the land. He's bringing them into a land that's already inhabited. And he said, the iniquity that they have produced in their sinful lifestyles, I'm done with them, I'm going to give the land to you. Which means, they're going to be, have to be displaced. And so as he displaces them, it's going to be a, a sign that they're walking in righteousness with God. He says there in verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I'm driving out from before you these people, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And later on he will say, In the day that you go in the land and you're trying to have victory over these other nations, when they start conquering you, It's not going to be because you didn't have the right strategy. It's going to be a sign to you that you're walking in disobedience to me, and I'm not pleased. They had physical ways to know that they were transgressing. God would take away the physical blessings so that they would know they were out of step with him. Now, I'm thankful that that doesn't happen to us today. There are spiritual blessings for us in the New Testament. There are spiritual closeness with God that is rewarded from obedience. If you've been through a trial this week and and maybe God's taken his hand off an area of your life or it seems like that, don't assume that it's because you're in sin. That's not always the case. It can be. God disciplines his children through physical things and yet it's not just... if If somebody around you is going through a hard time, don't make the assumption that it's because they're in sin. There was a man that was born blind in John, I think, chapter 4 or 5. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, hey, um, this man was born blind. Is it because his parents sinned or is it because he sinned? And Jesus said, no. He was born blind so that the glory of God would be revealed in his life. And that was right before he gave him sight. He took eyes that hadn't fully developed, eyes that had never seen. And in an instant, he made them able to see and recognize things. That's a miracle. That's not just slight healing. That's completely restoring something that didn't work at all. It's powerful. And so just because something goes wrong in your life doesn't mean that you're in sin. Although, I think when things go wrong in our lives, we experience pain or problems. One of our first responses to that should be, Lord, is this because I've done something that you're not pleased with? Being mature enough and humble enough to say, am I the reason for this? It's wise. And sometimes he'll go, yep, I'm slapping you on the wrist. And sometimes he'll say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Like he did to Paul, who had this thorn in his side and he was serving God. And there was, at the time, he prayed, Lord, there's there's this thorn in my side. I have this major physical ailment. Why am I in such pain? Would you please heal me? And he said he prayed three times, Lord, please heal me. I know you can. And the Lord said to him, no. My grace is sufficient for you. For when you are the weakest, then I'm made to shown to be I'm shown to be strongest. It's not about Paul's strength. It's actually because my grace is sufficient. And so, anyway, verse 12 through 28, this is how they would know that they were his. God says, I'm gonna do these things to prove that you're mine. And then he said, Here's how I want how I want you to live in the land in obedience to me to prove, to show that you're mine. 
By the way, the New Testament teaches us that we are not saved by any works that we can do. We're saved by grace through faith. And if it was about what we could do for God, then some of us would be bragging about it. But he said it's not about your works. But then James writes that faith without works is dead. So it's not that my works save me. My works prove that I'm saved. Your life should look different. The things that are produced from your life will prove that you are in fact God's. And so in the same way, he's teaching them how you conduct yourselves now that I've saved you and delivered you from the land of slavery. How you conduct yourself now with your freedom will prove that you're mine or they'll prove that you're not. So in verse 12, he says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Don't make promises. Don't make covenants with these other nations. I'm driving them out, he said. But you shall destroy their altars. You shall break down their sacred pillars, the places where they worship. You shall cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, he's a jealous God. He's jealous for you. He won't occupy the same place as another God in your heart. He he wants to be solely yours. He loves you that much. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and then one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice because you care what they think. He says, you, and then you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make marriages with them. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. So all of this is about idol worship, right? Don't make covenants with the other nations, and don't intermarry with them. And I believe that this is very important because for Christians, the, the truth is the same. If you got somebody in your life that you think is marriage material, but they don't worship Jesus and you do, you're setting yourself up for failure. Run. I don't care how good looking they are. Run. Get out of there. It will be terrible. It will be terrible. Because they'll start to worship the things that you've forsaken to worship Jesus, and then you'll be tempted to worship those things too. It's called compromise. And the reality is, if you are single here, I pray all the time for women that are single, that want to get married so bad they can taste it, not to compromise, and that God would put a godly man in their lives that loves Jesus more than he'll ever love them. Young men or single men, I'm praying that God would put godly women in your lives that love Jesus more than they love you because then they won't be led astray by you. But instead, if they love Jesus more than they love you, they're going to be the best spouse you can have. Don't compromise. Wait. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. You'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living if he wants you to be married. But that said, he goes on, verse 18, The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. So remember this feast every year. Why? So you'll remember that you were once in Egypt, and generations after you that weren't around for the event, they'll ask, why are we doing this? And then you can remind them, because God himself made it possible for us to be free. 
we need to keep ourselves holy unto him. He says, all that open the womb are mine, and every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. So all the firstborn among your people and among the livestock, they're, they're the Lord's. He says, they're mine. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. You shall purchase it back by giving a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. He's mine. I get to keep him. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So when you come to worship, bring of the first fruits of your labor, bring of the increase of your crops, bring of the money that I've provided for your families. When you worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all the increase of your labor, you're going to remember that it's all His anyway. Verse 21, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. But I want you to notice, he doesn't just say Sabbath. He then goes on to say, don't just do it when it's convenient. He says, I am to be worshipped above anything, even when it's time to plant crops, even when it's time to harvest, which are busy times if you're a farmer. Most of us aren't farmers. But you get the point. Even when you're busy with life, give yourself to the Lord. Give your time. Give the first fruits of your week. He says, you shall observe the feast of weeks, of the feast of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. What this does is it reminds us that the increase of our fields, uh, the increase of our crops, the har- he's the Lord of the harvest. So we give the first bit, the best of it, and then at the end of the, the year, when we're done harvesting and he's provided for the whole year, we give thanks again, remembering that the beginning, he's the alpha He's the Omega. He's the beginning and end of everything. Verse 23, Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So these three feasts, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, were times where every male 20 years old and older would be, they, they need to leave their land and go to the temple or the tabernacle, whatever it was at the time. He says, I will cast out the nations, verse 24, before you, and I will enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So some of the guys might be tempted. Hey, we're supposed to go three times a year and go worship at the temple. But who's going to protect my land while I'm gone? Well, in this, God promises, if you'll obey me, I'll protect your land while you're gone. Not one man will covet it. No, not one person will come to steal it. It'll remain yours as you're obedient to me. You get to keep what you give to me over and over again. Verse 25, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. Again, remembering to the Passover lamb in the land of Egypt, they applied the blood to the doorpost of the lentils of their house. And as they did that, They were saved by the blood of the lamb, but he says there shall be no leaven in the house because leaven is a picture of sin. So no sin. How do we purge ourselves of sin? I'm glad you asked. Confession. So as you worship God and as you come to offer up thanksgiving again, don't come to the house of the Lord. Well, come to the house of the Lord. But as you come and as you get ready to sing to God, make sure you confess your sin. Keep a short account. 
He says, the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, none of us are going to do that, right? But the point is, is some of the things he's telling them not to do are things that the people in the land they're getting ready to live in. That's what they do when they worship. He says, so when you come in to worship me in my house, when you, when you worship me at any time, don't worship me like the world does. Be holy. Worship me in the way I've prescribed. And I would go even further to say, uh, we shouldn't worship Jesus in the ways that the world tells us are okay. We should let our worship be guided by the word of God. And so in verse 27, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so Moses' mountain time is summarized in this. He says, Write down the words I've given you. And in verse 28, it says that he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread he neither drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So this proves what later would be written in the book of Deuteronomy, which is man does not live by bread alone. Moses survived 40 days without any bread. But he survives, he's sustained, he's kept alive by what? The word of God. And so here we have Moses, he says, write these words. But then he says, for according to the tenor of these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, I've been reading the Bible for 15 years. My pastor said, read the Bible every year. And this year, studying this, I noticed a new thing. It says there, not according to the words have I made a covenant, but according to the tenor of the words. Now, you might be like me going, what in the world does the word tenor mean? Tenor means the puff, the air, the essence behind the word. So the original meaning or the intent of the word, not just the words themselves. Now we have within our constitution the idea that there's separation between the church and the state, right? It was written in in the very beginning. The found, founding fathers thought it was important. And the tenor, the idea behind that was to keep the government to keep big G out of ruling or the state from ruling over the church so that the church could be free to worship Jesus. But what we've done is we've forgotten the original intended essence or the tenor. And so now we've said, well, that means to keep the church out of any form of government or out of any government or state organization. But that was not the original intended purpose. In the same way, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the Sadducees, made the law something that if you did it, then you were righteous. But what the law was meant to do was not to make us righteous, but to prove and show us that we were not righteous. The words, the letter of the law says, no other gods. And if you murder someone, then you will be killed. And all of those types of things. But the essence of that was not so that we would be worried about what not to do but in the not doing things we'd be freed up to do the things that God wanted us to do. Jesus said the law and the prophets could be summed up in this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Can you do that if you're worshipping other gods? Nope. 
He said, then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Can you do that if you're murdering them? I mean, it's that simple. You cannot love someone you murdered. You've hated them. And Jesus would later come on the scene and he would say, you guys are all worried about fulfilling the law to the letter. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder your neighbor. But I take it further and say, if you've hated someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. So it wasn't about the action, it was about the heart. So, the tenor, the spirit of the law is love God and love your neighbor. So, what I want to point out is this idea of tenor, as I was meditating upon it, tenor, the, the letter, the spirit of the law gives life. The letter of the law condemns. And so both are important. And so in Genesis, in chapter 2, in verse 7, it says there, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed his essence, or he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So what makes us alive is God's breath. It's life-giving. And man became a living being, not when he was formed from the dust, but when God breathed into him uh, the breath of life. And in the same way, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 27, he says it's the tenor of the word of God the tenor of the law that's going to give life to my people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse uh, 16, Paul famously writes something that pastors often quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God, or the woman of God, may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how can we be thoroughly equipped? How can we be corrected? How can we, we become profitable? By the word of God, which was inspired by God. And the word inspired means God breathed. And it's even been said that the term Yahweh that we use to describe God, Yah and Hue, is like Yah, breathing in, and Hue, breathing out. So even in you breathing in and out every day is testimony to the fact that we need God to stay alive and to be alive spiritually. And then in 2 Peter in chapter 1, I noticed this as we were studying with our men's Bible study, in verse uh, 16 through 21, uh, Peter is talking about the need for the Word of God and how they didn't just make it up or hear a, a fable, but in verse uh, 19 he says so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to take heed to as a light that shines in a dark place the word of God is a light it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path he says until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first this is something you need to know that prophecy of scripture is of no private interpretation so we talked about how the law of the land that we live in has been improperly interpreted because they've forgotten the original intended meaning of it. And yet, prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gave the inspiration, the breath, you might say, the essence, the tenor, and so the Word of God has one intended meaning. And that meaning is what breathes life into the people of God that will listen to it. And so, Moses now comes down with the tenor of the word. Not just the word, but the meaning behind the word. And in verse 29, it says, Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, he came down from the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face was shining while he talked with him. And so Moses comes down with the word of God. Moses has been changed by the face of God. And while he knows that he has the word of God, that's been changed. He also does not know something that he's been changed in ways that he can't see. When I became a Christian, there were things about me that changed that I knew for a fact that they had drastically changed. And they should. If you've repented of your sin and said, Lord, you're Lord now, there are some things that you know need to go. Plain and simple. And if they haven't gone yet, I would question whether or not you've made him the Lord of your life. And you know the things I'm talking about. But there are also things that changed that I was completely oblivious to. And when I would be around people, I'd just be talking out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and I would say something that to me was now normal. And then they would hear it, and they'd be completely creeped out by it. By the way, if you've been filled with the Spirit of God, there's going to be some things that should come from your mouth that will creep people out, because guess what? This isn't our home anymore. We have a different father. We have a different purpose. That we're salt and light, and salt makes people uncomfortable when you throw it in their wounds. But it also quickens us to the fact that we're not where we should be. We need healing. And so, here we have, Moses has been changed in ways he knows about, and in ways he doesn't know about. But then verse 30, it says, When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face was still shining, and they were afraid to come near him. His time with the Lord affected him in a way that made him un- he made the people around him uncomfortable. Holiness, by the way, to the world that has never seen our holy God the way he truly is, it looks wrong. Holiness looks wrong to the world. That's okay. Our world's now upside down. But holiness looks wrong at first. It shouldn't continue to look wrong. We should be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what is that good and faithful will of God in our lives. And so eventually to the believer, the holiness should look right, if that makes sense. Our minds should be changed. But notice verse 31 says, Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. So now instead of throwing things and yelling, he's instructing and the, the leaders afterward, having heard the word of God, they, all the children of Israel came near by their leadership, and he gave them the commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. So not, now not only do they know that they were wrong, now, that they, know, now they know how they are supposed to live. And, and that's helpful. 
So when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Now his face was glowing, and they've already seen it. Why would he cover up his face? Verse 34 says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out, and then he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. But whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that his face was shining, Moses would put the veil back on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And so this time with Moses would affect him. It would give him glory on his face. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that the glory would fade. And the covenant that God made with the people of Israel with the Ten Commandments and with all these laws, that glory fades away. But we have a faith in Jesus that while we've been affected by the glory of God through the face of Jesus, our glory does not fade. It, it doesn't snuff out. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, towards the end of that section of verses around 17 or 18, says, Now that we've beheld the face of Jesus, we grow from glory to glory and to glory. And by the way, in this life, we never arrive at our final destination. The place where we are finished product in Jesus is when we see him face to face. He's done with his handiwork on us. And so... God's glory will be visible in his followers. And I would question whether or not you've experienced the glory of God if it's not visible in your life. God's glory changed Moses. Being in God's presence will change more than just our appearance. Being in God's presence will change our hearts. Evidence of God's presence in our lives will be visible. And if you don't think that's the case, in Acts chapter 4, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, or maybe it was Peter and John, they were testifying of Jesus after his death and his resurrection. And he, they kept proclaiming these things, and they healed a man, and they said, by what power and authority have you healed this man? And they said, in the name of Jesus, because there's power in the name of Jesus. And because of that, and their testimony, they were thrown in jail. And the next day, they brought him out of the prison. And they questioned them. Who gives you the authority? Why are you doing this? Why do you keep... And they said, it's in the name of Jesus that we do these things. And they testified boldly to the fulfillment of the Old Testament to these scholars. And what's funny is in Acts chapter 4, after hearing the testimony of these Jesus followers, even though they didn't agree with these Jesus followers... In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and when they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Now, they weren't marveling because these guys were dumb or because they were just fishermen in the eyes of the world. They marveled that though these were untrained men, they hadn't been to synagogue or seminary or cemetery, whatever you want to call it. Instead, even though they were untrained and uneducated men, they marveled because one thing they noticed about them is that they had realized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus had left a mark so obvious on these men that after Jesus' death, and he was no longer around, when these guys were walking around, they go, I don't know what they're doing, but they've obviously been with Jesus. And I don't know about you, 
But if there's one thing that I desire for my life is that no matter what happens to me, no matter what God's got me doing, no matter what circumstances I'm living in, no matter how I'm treated, I would like to be able to at the, be able at the end of the day for people to say, I don't know what's going on with that wacko, but I can tell he's been with Jesus. And so when we soak in the glory of man, we'll blend into the world, we'll be comfortable. But when we soak in God's glory, we'll stand out like a sore thumb and we'll be bold for all the right reasons. Moses, because he spent time kneeling before God and listening for the words of God, Moses had the ability to stand before even his peers without any fear. And if there's one thing that you and I, if there's one thing that our world today needs, we need people. God needs people. The world needs you and I to spend time kneeling before the Father, getting to know Him, letting His glory shine upon us, letting Him change us from the inside out, and then whatever He tells us, don't be afraid and don't be silent anymore. The Christian church right now is silent. I'm painting with a broad brush. We are intimidated by what the news is telling us. We're intimidated by what politics is telling us. We're intimidated by what the health industry is telling us. And what I'm saying is, if you're afraid to speak boldly, if you're ashamed to share the word of God and the truth that sets men free, I would submit to you, maybe it's because you need to go back up the mountain. Remember the God you serve, and then boldly proclaim what he tells you. The world needs it. We're called to be salt. Salt is the only thing that will preserve society. Salt is the only thing that will hold back the judgment that your neighbors will receive. Salt is the only thing that will burn just enough to quicken people to realize this is all going to burn, then what? I need an eternal plan. And so this morning, I want to submit you this. I would ask you, think about this. Are you in the faith? Have you been impacted by Jesus? And if you haven't, before you leave today, come up and talk to me. Let's pray. Let's, let's start the relationship. Because then, it's from glory to glory. No matter who's president, no matter who's at war, no matter what plague comes, glory to glory. And then at the end, when we die, or he comes back first, glory to future glory, better glory. It's all preparing us to worship him for eternity. So Father, we thank you so much for your work in the life of Moses, who by his own pen was the most humble guy that ever lived. And yet, we see the process that he wasn't saved at one setting. It was from glory to glory. He saw you in the burning bush. He understood. He feared the Lord. He led the people. He threw the stuff down. He yelled. He misrepresented you. And then he was called back up on the mountain and you changed him some more. So Father, don't let us stop merely at the words of salvation. Lord, help us to have the faith to let you sanctify us and transform us And then, Lord, use us, use our testimony, use everything about us to proclaim your glory, to proclaim your salvation to a world who desperately needs it.
In Jesus' name, amen.